songs were the hymn book of Jesus. They were the songs that he grew up singing. They were the songs that all of Israel would sing together. They were quite literally their hymn book. And this morning we're in Psalm 63. But before I read God's word to us, let me make mention of three things. Number one, inside your bulletin this week, you will see that there's a Trinity Connect card. Would you please take that? If you're a member or a guest, use a crayon, use your blood, use a pen, whatever it takes. Fill that out and please drop it in the offering plate when it comes down after the sermon. Second thing, in the same bulletin, yes, yay, that very same bulletin, there is a prayer calendar for the month, which has all of the members of our church, the heads of the households of those families. Would you please use that to pray for the members of our church? We need you. I can only speak for myself, not as your pastor, just as a fellow believer. I covet your prayers for my family. And it's a joy to be able to pray together with others for your family as well. The last thing on the back of your bulletin, please notice all of those announcements that you'll want to give your attention to for the months and weeks ahead. Now, if you're willing and able, let's stand together to read from Psalm 63. This is a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals, but the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. You may be seated. Father, we pray now as we open your word <clears throat> that you would help us to listen well that you'd forgive the sins of the preacher, for they are many. And that you might help us to walk out of here seeing the beauty and majesty of your son. Jesus, you're the only perfect person in this place. And your words are the only perfect words. So would you use them, we pray, to soften our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? The last thing Ricky McGee remembered was driving along a long, dusty, isolated road in the Australian outback 
when he saw three men who obviously needed help flagging down his car. And the next thing he knows, he wakes up dazed and confused, unaware of where he is, with dingoes, wild dogs, licking and scratching at his shallow grave. And so begins Ricky McGee's 70-day journey through the Australian wilderness to survive. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? In Psalm 63, David is in the wilderness. It says in the heading, which is the scribal de declaration of when the psalm is written. It says in the heading, look, lower your eyes and look. It says the psalm of David. When he was in the wilderness of Judah... David was the king of Israel. He was the king, and there had been a coup. And a coup not by some evil rival, but a coup within his own family. It was a coup by his own son, Absalom. And his son marshaled all of David's own men to turn against his father, against the king. And they ran him out of the palace. And David is on the run, trying to survive in the wilderness. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? David didn't plan this. He missed the comfort of the palace. He missed his servants. But there he is, having to survive in the middle of the wilderness. You know, in Scripture, the wilderness for us is a paradigm for the Christian life. The wilderness in Scripture is a paradigm for the Christian life. Because you remember whenever Israel came out of bondage to Egypt, do you remember? They were promised what? They were promised a land flown with milk and honey, and they leave. They leave Egypt. And where do they go? Do they go to the promised land? No. Though promised the land, they find themselves smack dab in the middle of the wilderness. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? When you become a Christian, when you are united to Christ, when you place your faith in Jesus, please hear me. When you are His, you are saved. But you're not yet in heaven. You're not yet in the promised land. And you know, you know that you still sin. You're saved from the penalty of your sins, but you're not freed yet from its power. You're still in the wilderness because the Bible says no one escapes the wilderness. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? What does it mean to have to survive the wilderness? I'll tell you what it means. It means that you have to file a police report on your own son. That's the wilderness. It means like a pastor friend of mine who not long ago got a call from his college daughter who just left to go off to school last year and says, Daddy, I'm pregnant. That's the wilderness. It's my friend who runs a company that his grandfather started who this week had to fire two people who had worked for his grandfather's company, his father's company, now his company, for 40 years and he had to lay these men off. That's the wilderness. 
It's when you're exhausted at 4.30 and your husband's not home, he's still at work. And you think things about your children that you never, ever want to think again. And you certainly wouldn't say them out loud. That's the wilderness. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? It's like my friend, one of my best high school friends, was married for 10 years. And by accident on his wife's Gmail, he found out that she was having a three-year affair. That's the wilderness. Many of you have heard all of your life, listen, if you just accept Jesus, then life gets so much better. If you're faithful to him, he will bless you. In fact, you've heard men say, listen, there is great joy. There is victory in the Christian life. If only you'll believe more. He will bless you with prosperity. He will bless you with health. There will be no more disease. And I'm here to tell you that that is a lie. And you have been lied to. Because no one escapes the wilderness. That kind of talk about life being better when you become a Christian, listen, it looks like medicine, but it is poison. No one escapes the wilderness. The Lord put David in the wilderness to remind David that he is desperate for God. And some of you are in the wilderness this morning. And it's hard to be in the wilderness. And what Psalm 63 teaches us is that when you're in the wilderness, God keeps you there until you become totally desperate. Because for religious people, please hear me, God is useful. He's useful. But for Christians, he becomes beautiful. For some of you, Jesus has been useful for a long time. It's useful for you to make friends. It's useful for you to get your kids connected with people in the community. And you've used God. And there would be very, li very little difference in your view of religion if you grew up in a Muslim or a Hindu country. You'd be Muslim or Hindu. You're just playing the cultural card that's been dealt to you. For you, religious person, listen, God is useful to you. But for a Christian, God becomes beautiful. And he will keep you in the wilderness until you see his beauty. What are the marks that God is becoming beautiful to you? That's what Psalm 63 answers for us. So let's look at it together. What are the marks of your spiritual vitality in the wilderness? The first mark, there are four if you're a note taker. The first mark is a spiritual thirst. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. There's a very real sense here that God's absence is very strong. You can feel it. Like to die of, nobody dies of thirst by their choice. It is a horrible way to die. And David could not say it in any more poignant of terms. He is saying, it is as though I am dying of thirst. I long for you like a dying man longs for just a drop of water. There's a spiritual thirst. And throughout the Psalms, spiritual thirst is a sign of spiritual life and vitality. It is longing for something more than what you've got. 
It is yearning for something to satisfy your soul. And we wouldn't even have this sense of God's absence. We wouldn't even have it if God were not first at work in your heart because you do not miss things that don't have a place in your heart. Romans 3 says, categorically, the natural heart never seeks God. So seeking God, we do so as those who have the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you thirst, if you seek, if you long for God, you know what? There's a pretty good sign that he's at work in you. Oh, that's a sign of life. And it's beautiful if you see it. I was talking to a friend who um, has been coming to Trinity recently. He was telling me his story. He went overseas, was, a, was in Germany, was reading all the philosophers, was reading everybody that he could get his hands on to try to think. Now, what is life about? And he started coming to church, and at some moment in his life, he began to thirst, and he longed to be satisfied And what the philosophers could not provide for him, a Jewish carpenter did. Because he heard the story about how Jesus lived a perfect life for him, denied himself, never sinned once, and died on the cross in his place not just to take away his sins, but to give him what he craved, give him righteousness, perfect righteousness before an infinitely holy God. And God stopped being useful and became beautiful. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? To a religious person, God is useful. But to a Christian, God is beautiful. Isaiah used to go with the throng of Israel and they would sing the Psalms as they thought of the days when they would ascend the Temple Mount. In fact, in Psalm 81, it's a song that they sing to Sukkot. It's the song that they would sing as they go. The Jewish word is Sukkot. They would go to the Festival of Tabernacles. Most of you who are in the wilderness, who have been in the wilderness, don't ever want to remember it again. But you know that God gave Israel a seven-day feast to remember the wilderness. And today, Jews still practice Sukkot. In Psalm 81, they say, we will ascend the hill of the Lord. We will remember the wilderness. And Jesus, some scholars believe that Jesus was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Because what does it say in John 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God, and He tabernacled among us. Because Jesus was the one who came to rescue us out from under the wilderness. He was the one that came to endure the wilderness. So where did Jesus always go to commune with His Father? He always went where? Into the wilderness. Right after Jesus was baptized, where does he immediately go? He says he is led by Satan to be tempted where? In the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus, friends, knows what it's like to survive in the wilderness. And he wants you to know that he knows your wilderness. And you are not alone. The pain of feeling alone can end with Christ. St. Augustine was a man who lived from 354 to 430, 
fourth and fifth centuries, one of the great Christians, Protestants and Catholics, both claim St. Augustine as their own and both have some legitimate right in doing so. Augustine tried philosophy. Augustine tried sex. He had a child out of wedlock named Ariodatus. Augustine tried teaching the philosophers in Milan. Augustine was a professor of rhetoric. He knew more than anybody in this room could possibly want to know about Greek and Roman philosophy. And yet Augustine one day opened his Bible, found a Bible actually, for some children were singing, tola lege, tola lege, pick up and read. And he saw an open Bible and it was turned to Romans chapter 13. And Augustine read that you should not give in to sin that you should abstain from all idolatry, all fornication. You should sin no longer. And Augustine was cut to the heart to cast off all the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now that didn't just knock your socks off, but Augustine fell off the bench in a park and he became a Christian. And later he wrote, Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power and your infinite wisdom. Human beings, as but a little part of your creation, would praise you. Human beings would bear with them their mortality, the witness of their sin, the witness that you could resist the proud. Yet they would praise you. They who are but part of your creation. You wake us to the light in your praise and you've made us for yourselves and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. The sign of your spiritual vitality in the wilderness is your spiritual thirst. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? Is Jesus becoming beautiful to you? Or is he just useful? The second sign of spiritual vitality in the wilderness is a new or renewed sense of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant was where God's presence was for the Israelites. It was where God's presence was for David. It was protected and kept safe. And here David is chased out. And they start to bring the Ark with the king, lest the king be separated from God's presence. And he says, no, no, no. Take that back to Jerusalem. And David is reflecting on what it's like to be in the sanctuary of God, the tabernacle of God. And he says in verse 2, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary. I beheld your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. There's a renewed sense of the presence of God. My soul will be satisfied with the deepest and the richest of food. Verse 5, Isaiah 55 has this great line where he starts out. He says, come all you who are thirsty and come, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Don't spend your money on what doesn't satisfy you, but eat what is good and delight yourself in the richest affairs. Isaiah is saying, delight yourself in the one true king. You have a new sense of God's presence in your life. An 18-year-old, a 17-year-old teenage girl who was popular. She was well-liked in her school. She 
was part of the National Honor Society. She was a field hockey player. She was the homecoming queen. She was the class president. She even dated the quarterback of the football team from the rival high school. <laughs> and the summer before her senior year, she dove into a lake and she broke her neck. And for two years, she, she was in a rehabilitation hospital, paralyzed from her neck down. She wasn't a Christian, and this event didn't seem to be moving her in that direction at all. But someone came to her hospital room and shared Jesus with her. And it wasn't her pastor, and it wasn't the hospital chaplain, and it wasn't her family. You know who it was? It was her family's paper boy. <laughs> he came to see her. He was 17. She was at this time 19 years old. And he came to see her, and he told her about Jesus. And he knew, he knew from his youth group, and he knew from his Christian school, and he knew from Sunday school. He knew all the answers. He knew about God's sovereignty over everything in life. He knew about God's sovereignty over the affairs of men. But this was the big leagues. This was the paralyzed teenage girl in the wheelchair. And he knew the question would come. And you know the question, don't you? At some point in the midst of the 17-year-old boy sharing the gospel with this 19-year-old girl, the question came. And the question was, did God cause me to be in this chair? And he swallowed hard. And he thought back about all the stuff that he had learned. And he knew that if he said the wrong thing, she may never talk to him again. Did God cause me to be in this chair? And he swallowed hard and he looked her right in the face and he said, yes. God caused you to be in that chair. Because he loves you. We may never know why. We may never have a clue in this life. It may not be until the next. But God caused you to be in that chair because he loves you. And those words changed her life. So that Joni Erickson Tata became the greatest advocate for special needs children this country has ever seen for the past 30 years. And she became a Christian. When you're in the wilderness, there is a renewed or there is a new sense of God's presence. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? Jesus will keep you there until he stops becoming useful to you and he starts becoming beautiful. To the religious, Jesus is useful. But to Christians, oh, he's beautiful. John Newton wrote, These worldly trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break these schemes of earthly joy that thou may seest. Thou mayest seek thine all in me. There's a spiritual thirst. There's a new sense of God's presence. 
also notice there is a realization of grace. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life. The word steadfast love is the word kesed. It is a loyal, faithful, never-ending love. No matter what you do, I will love you kind of love. Do you, you know that kind of love? It's beautiful when you see that kind of love. Later, David says in verse 7, you have been my help. The word help comes from the word azar. It's the word which we find Ebenezer, our stone of help. There's a lot of names in the Bible that are based on this word. Azrael, Azariah, Azarel, even Ezra comes from this word. It means God is my help. David says, God, you are my help. There is a realization of grace. That's beautiful. Later he says, for you've been my help, verse 7, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. In the shadow of your wings. In the summer when it's hot in my backyard, in my house, sometimes we'll play games with my children. I'll play games where we get the water hoses out. And we see who can get each other the wettest. And you know what? I always win because I pay the water bill. <laughs> and the kids know that as soon as daddy gets the hose and he starts spraying, they're running and they have no defense except one, their mother. <laughs> and they will come and they will cling to her leg and they will hide in the shadow of her arms. And they know, <laughs> oh, they know that I will soak them from head to toe, but I will not get their mother wet. And friends, when you realize grace, you realize that Jesus hides you under the shadow of his wings. It's not just that he's forgiven you and leaves you on your own. He gives you his righteousness, which means he protects you. He guards you from the penalty of your sin so that it will never touch you again. And David says, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Oh, that is not useful. That is beautiful. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? To the religious, Jesus is useful. But to the Christian, Jesus is beautiful. Yahweh used to be useful for King David. He was useful. Helped him become the king. Gave him all that he wanted. Until one day David on his balcony saw a beautiful woman and decided to take what was not his. And after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, then he had Uriah, her husband, killed in cold blood. And it wasn't until David saw grace in the eyes of his friend Nathan the prophet, who told him a story and then said, David, you are that man. You're the man who has sinned against God. And David's greatest day was the day he realized grace. And here's David again in the wilderness. And he knows, he knows that he doesn't deserve to live one day more. And therefore, in the wilderness, running from his own son, his own family, he can sing because he knows he's in the shadow of God's wings. Friends, that's not useful. That's beautiful. 
for years, Lauren has known that um, I've had this secret idolatry of you too. Can I confess that? I love you too. And we tried to get tickets to go to a U2 concert when we lived in Dallas. And they sold out in American Airlines. They sold out in 20 minutes. So when we were in New Jersey, finally Lauren scores me tickets. And I'm so pumped. I'm so excited. But the concert was the same day that we told a church named Trinity that we would come be their pastor. I was torn. Maybe I should say no so I can go to the concert. But I said yes. And the next weekend, we flew to Philly. And I, Lauren couldn't come. She was helping get the house settled. So I took a friend of mine. And so we go to Lincoln Financial Field, and we listen to this amazing concert. It was amazing. It's amazing. In the presence of 80,000 people, we are singing for joy. It's beautiful. And I looked over to my friend, and I said, if I wasn't married, if I wasn't a pastor, Man, I would follow you two everywhere they go and go to every single one of their concerts. And he looked at me and he goes, you know what? You are married and you are a pastor. And God has given us something better. He's given us a bloody concert every single week. It's called worshiping with God's people. And Jesus shows up. And Bono's got nothing on Jesus because Jesus has grace and he gives it to you because you're in the wilderness and you're exhausting yourself trying to perform for him. And can I just tell you some good news? Stop doing that and recognize that he loves you. And if you know his love and you're trying to play the ace of spade trump card, I'm saved by grace, I can do whatever I want. Oh, brother, check your salvation. Sister, check your heart. Because the fruit is connected to the root. Have you ever had to survive in the wilderness? To religious people, Jesus is useful. But to Christians, Jesus is beautiful. Is he beautiful to you? The last thing that David shows us, the fourth thing. You have a spiritual thirst. You have a new or renewed sense of God's presence. You have a realization of grace in your life. And the last thing is you have confidence in an identity that is evidenced by praise. David says in the third person in verse 11, very last verse of the chapter, but the king that is, but I, David says, shall rejoice in God. David's on the run, he's in the wilderness, but he knows who he is. He knows I'm a king. The king shall rejoice in God. And the confidence that David had in his identity in Jesus, for David, the confidence he had in his identity in Yahweh, gives forth to praise. So I will praise God. How much more so for those of us who are on this side of the cross, do we have confidence in the true king, Jesus, who says, oh, friends, you know what? I too have made you a king. I've made you to share in my kingdom. And everything that I have, I have given to you. It is not useful. It is beautiful. Whenever you want to um, express confidence in something, it is a natural thing to do to boast in it, to give a ritual boast, to say you are great, to be able to pump yourself up before the football team and all the guys in the locker room get together and they say, 
we're going to go out there and we're going to tear them apart. It'll be 50 to nothing at halftime. We get all excited, rawr, rawr, and they all go out there. And what does Paul say? He says, I will boast in nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ because we are called to make the same kind of ritual boast, but not in our performance. We boast in his performance. And his performance was absolutely perfect for you. Absolutely perfect for every one of his children because it was enough. And David knows who he is, even in the midst of the wilderness. And he gives birth and gives forth to praise. Are you alive in the wilderness? Do you thirst for God? Do you have a new or renewed sense of his presence? Do you have a realization of grace in the midst of the wilderness? Do you have a confidence in your identity that is evidenced by praise and by boasting in Jesus' finished work? That's what Psalm 63 teaches us. It shows us that when you're in the wilderness, listen, Jesus isn't useful. He becomes beautiful. Is he beautiful to you? Some of you in this room say, that's not helpful. He's not, I don't thirst. <laughs> I don't really feel his presence. I don't really f- know about grace. And I still, I'm not very confident. In fact, I'm really insecure. Would you ask him to make himself known to you? Would you just ask him? And would you try to identify in your own heart what you do think is beautiful? Because you think something's beautiful. What is it? What drives you? What gives you your sense of identity and purpose and joy? Try it. What is that? Let's be honest and learn ourselves. And then I would just say to you, keep coming back. Come every week. If you're perfect, stay home. You won't like it here. But if you're broken, come. Ricky McGee found frogs and leeches and lizards and cockroaches. And he made his way through the Australian outback and he found a dam and a small reservoir and he stayed there to hydrate himself until one day two farmhands stumbled upon this withered skeleton, deeply tanned by the extreme heat of the sun, man. But he was alive. And friends, Jesus has found you, if he's beautiful to you. And you may think that you're a walking skeleton in the wilderness, but Jesus is there. And he wants you to know that he loves you. And he wants you to be able to confess, oh, Jesus, you're not useful. I'm tired of making you useful to just get what I want. You're beautiful. And when you can say Jesus isn't useful, but he's beautiful to you, you're beginning to get the gospel. Because Jesus thirsted for you. And he gives himself living water from which you will never thirst again. And Jesus was denied 
God's presence on the cross so that you might be able to have a realization of his presence. And Jesus was denied mercy so that you might receive grace. And Jesus, Jesus never forgot who he was because on that cross, he was thinking about you. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. May they stop seeing me as useful and may they start seeing me as beautiful. There's a great temptation in the wilderness for people today, especially in conservative places like Owasso, to use God to get what we want. But to the religious, Jesus is useful. But to the Christian, he is beautiful. And God puts you in the wilderness to show you his beauty. And he wants you to see that only he can satisfy you. And when we look at Jesus with confidence, we boast in his finished work and his praise. And we say, oh, Jesus, you are not useful. You're beautiful. And you are my only hope in the wilderness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to be people who thirst for you? Would you help us to be people who have a renewed, or for some of us who have never had a sense of your presence, a new sense of your presence? Would you help us to have a realization of grace that you completed for us what we could never complete and that you love us because you love us? And would you, Lord Christ, give us a confidence, not in ourselves, but in your finished work. And may it give forth songs out of our mouth and praise, even when we're in the midst of the wilderness. Because you have found us, and you will bring us home. Hallelujah.